Good evening. You're going to have to tone me down. I'm a little bit louder mouth than that. So, uh, I'm so excited that we have the, the really big privilege of being with all of you here tonight. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and my son, Luke, and I, as uh, Philip mentioned, we've been in Cusco for nearly five years now. And uh, I shamelessly put another picture of my really cute son up here just to, you gave me the pulpit, so I had to do it. Um, but we're, we're so thankful, and I wanted to start off by expressing our deepest gratitude to all of you tonight because uh, I feel like we've been a part of the extended Mount Juliet family for the last five years, and even beyond that, before we even went down to Cusco, you guys have welcomed us in. Especially good to see some of you that we've gotten closer to, to spend a lot of great time with the Haley's and the Coleman's earlier this year when they came down for a, a week of mission trip to Cusco, and uh, we hope more of you all will be able to make your way down there. We've had the, the Humphreys. Uh, and others that have come down as well on the medical mission campaign, which I'll uh, be happy to talk to you more about afterwards tonight. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I've got a little bit of time to share the work in Cusco with you, but then we're going to turn our focus for the last and the majority of our time to the Word of God and study a portion of Scripture tonight. I do want to start off um, by reintroducing you to the work in Cusco, Peru. I know not everybody has memorized my past presentations, and it's been a year and a half since we've been here. So I want to start off by giving you a refresher on the city of Cusco and the people there, tell you a little bit about the work, and then we'll dive into Scripture this evening. So Cusco, Peru is located in the Andes Mountains of South America, and we're in a city that's got a population of about 500,000 people. If you go to the surrounding area, we have a population of over 1.2 million, but there are fewer than 400 New Testament Christians in Cusco region today. Uh, you all probably have 600 plus here in the auditorium tonight. In fact, what we've learned is that uh, Cusco, Peru, and the Andes Mountains region of Western South America is one of the least evangelized areas in the entire world by members of the Church of Christ. What we found over the last eight and a half years as a mission team in Cusco, Peru, though, is that the people of Cusco are highly receptive to the Word of God. But because of their religious heritage, they haven't had many opportunities to hear it in its truth and its simplicity and its purity. Um, culturally or geographically, we in Cusco, we live at an elevation of 11,000 feet. So Denver's the mile-high city. We're the two-mile-high city in Cusco, Peru. Um, John and Christy and Tanya and Jason can attest to how much more difficult it is to breathe at that altitude. <laughs> but we live at 11,000 feet. We're surrounded by breathtaking mountains. Uh, we're down in a valley in the top of the Andes Mountains. Uh, we've got the cultural heritage of Cusco, the ancient Inca Empire in Western South America that was later colonized by the Spanish. And so you've got the beautiful Spanish colonial architecture there, the cobblestone streets got three million tourists that come through Cusco every year to visit the ruins of Machu Picchu. Some of you may have heard of that. And so we have a huge international city that we're ministering to in Cusco. Culturally, we've got one of the most well-preserved indigenous populations in the entire world in Cusco with the ancient or the descendants of the ancient Incan Empire. Uh, people don't dress like that all day, every day. That's just for special occasions. But we have an incredible rich cultural heritage there in Cusco. Linguistically, the people in Peru... Um, largely speak the language of Spanish, but there are still 8 million people that speak a native language called Quechua that is a descendant of an ancient Inca dialect. Uh, so that's a little bit of a refresher on Cusco. I think actually one more. Religiously, over 80% of the people of the country of Peru claim Catholicism as their primary religion or their religion of name. 
Um, but as is the case in most places in Latin America, there's a, an interesting mix of the native beliefs mixed in with that Catholicism. So what we have in Cusco is a very particular kind of Catholicism. That's a very sh short, brief, crash course reintroduction to the city of Cusco. And now I want to shift our focus to the work in Cusco itself. Uh, we on the mission team in Cusco, we take the vision and the planning of everything that we do very seriously. We have defined short-term and long-term goals for every aspect of the work. And overall, the work in Cusco is guided by a comprehensive five-part strategy. And so what I want to do to start off our time together is to tell you those five goals that guide the vision of the Cusco work and then tell you how God's been blessing the church toward those goals. <clears throat> Goal number one, obviously, we want to reach the lost of all classes of people, bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. But our target is heads of households. Why? In the Latin American culture, once you're able to bring the influencer, the head of the family into Christ, bring them into the church, it's that much easier for doors to open to the remaining members of that family. Once you get in with the head of the household, doors open to reach the rest of the family. Goal number two is eventually we want to incorporate these believers into one dynamic, self-sustaining, and self-leading congregation of at least 300 members. We also need to focus, and I'll talk about this more tonight, on training local men and women to be the future, uh, the ones doing the ministry there in Cusco, the future leaders of the church. We need elders and deacons and all sorts of ministry leaders, just like you all have here at Mount Juliet there in Cusco. Our goal is never for the foreign missionaries to be there permanently, we want a Peruvian church there in Cusco, Peru. Goal number four is eventually <clears throat> we need to secure a permanent location for the Cusco church. It's highly critical in Latin America for us to have a permanent location to establish the church for generations to come. That's all to get the first congregation established in order for us to help the local men and women attain goal number five, which is helping them uh, before the entire foreign missionary presence leaves Cusco, we want to help the local members of the church plant at least one additional congregation in the city or the surrounding area. In a very real way, we want to start a church planting movement in Cusco, Peru. To put that in summary, we're in year nine of the work right now, and by year 15, we hope to have a self-sustaining congregation of at least 300 members comprised primarily of whole families that are meeting in their own permanent church building, we want that congregation to be led by local Peruvians, and we want that church to have a passionate evangelistic focus to plant more churches in the city and the surrounding region. So looking forward to the horizon, there are a lot of great, uh, really incredible things coming up on the horizon for the church in Cusco, but before I share some of those with you, it's important to have a little bit of a context of what's gone on in Cusco since its inception, how the church was established eight years ago and what God's done in the eight and a half years since. So I want to give you a brief refresher on the history of the work. Back in October of 2009, the original three families of the Cusco team arrived there in Cusco on the field. Those families were Matt and Charlotte Cook. He's now a missions professor at Freed Hardeman. Uh, Gary and Jennifer Reeves in the middle, and Barton and Allison Kaiser there on the right. Uh, just one year later, after the team arrived, we had our very first ever worship service in Cusco, and the team was absolutely blown away because over 250 people showed up at that first worship service. And then they joke with us because reality check kind of hit them the next week and only 30 of those 250 came back. But God began to use that original group of 30 visitors to grow the church organically going forward. Fast forward a couple of years, by middle of 2013, we had reached about 60 people in average attendance at the worship service. So we started to experience some true momentum as a local congregation. But just as we were flourishing, a local grocery store chain came in 
and they offered our landlord twice the amount of rent that we could pay. We were kicked out of our rent contract and we were forced to look for a new location. And while the place that we have ended up four years ago, the new neighborhood, the new facility has been one of the biggest unforeseen blessings we could have ever, ever prayed for. The problem is that this current facility only holds about a quarter of the people that the previous one could hold. As a growing congregation that presents uh, an obstacle or maybe better said, an opportunity for us in the future. In just the first year in our new smaller facility, we soon grew to fill up the auditorium on Sunday mornings at our worship service. And so to alleviate the space constraints of that smaller facility, we added a second worship service. And so we do much like you all do here. We have an early morning service, Bible class, and then the same service again after the Bible classes. And almost immediately, we saw a huge spike in our average attendance, and we've been able to uh, maintain that increase ever since. By December 2015, we were hitting almost 100 people in average attendance on Sunday mornings between the two services. That was a 50% growth from just two years before. But as I've shared with other congregations up till now, I, I have a background in finance, and so I tend to focus too much on the numbers, and church planning isn't all about the number of people in the pews during a worship service. It's also about the people you invest in as the future leaders of the church. These two guys, Elvis Chacon with his wife Yolanda, and the other one, Percy Avalos on the right, uh, they graduated from our leadership training program in Cusco, and in January of 2016, they continued their education at the Baxter Institute of Biblical Studies in Honduras with the goal of coming back and becoming the first two ever ministers full-time of the local church in Cusco. Last year, we had the blessing of welcoming them back after their time at the Baxter Institute, and Percy and Elvis joined the church and joined the mission team as the first two full-time ministers of the church, and they have been doing a phenomenal job in ministry and leading the church into the future. And I'll talk a little bit more about this. But I mentioned that they're integrating, or they have integrated into the mission team, and that presents some incredible experiences, but some challenges as well. And I'll touch on that here in a second. As of April of this year, the latest numbers that we have, we're hitting about 130 in average attendance on Sunday mornings between the two services. In the eight and a half years that the church has been there in Cusco, we've had over 150 people baptized into Christ. We've got 10 Bible study groups that meet in different places all across the city on a weekly basis, nearly 100 people attending those 10 groups. And so I hope even though this has been a short, short, brief introduction to Cusco, you can see as well as I can that God is hard at work in Cusco, Peru. Um, it's been really uh, kind of a, a reality check for Sarah and for me especially because it's hard for us to believe that we've nearly been in Cusco for five years. But for the first four of those years of our time in Cusco, we were working on an ex a team made up exclusively of foreign missionaries, people from the United States. And so while we have always done 100% of the worship services, Bible studies, all of our ministry has always been in Spanish. We had been able up till the beginning of last year, to do our team meetings and our planning in English, which is a little bit easier to do. But when Percy and Elvis came back from the Baxter Institute, all of a sudden, we began this exciting process of adding two Peruvian families to our mission team and into our church staff. And while it's been one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever been a part of, it's also been one of the most challenging I've ever been a part of. In a very real way, we are transitioning as a church and that transition starts with the mission team itself. We're marrying two cultures, two languages. We're doing all of our planning, all of our vision. All of that is now in Spanish to integrate our two new team members, Peruvian team members, into the team. 
This is the first step in our eventual goal as a team to transition the leadership and the responsibilities of ministry in the local church to the men and women of the congregation locally. I want to introduce you really quickly to the two families on the mission team that are Peruvian. Uh, first, we've got Elvis and Yolanda Chacon. And just uh, about three and a half months ago, God blessed them with their new baby girl, April, uh, the translated version of the name April. And then we've got Percy Avalos and these two guys um, are tag teaming the pulpit. Elvis is our main pulpit minister, Percy is our main worship minister, and they both work in tons of different ministries in the church and are doing a phenomenal job. Uh, Yolanda, up until April was born, had been working in the children's ministry alongside Sarah, and I cannot wait for the next handful of years where we're going to get to work side by side with uh, our brothers and sisters um, from another culture and another language, and I know you guys are excited to see that they're doing well, uh, having gotten to meet them face to face. So I've been mentioning that 2018 and 2019 have been these huge years of transition. It's not only been a transition for the team, but it's been a transition for the local church as well. Uh, but nothing has been more difficult for us in Cusco over the last eight and a half years than what we had to do in December of last year. On December 16, 2018, we had to say goodbye to family. Uh, we said goodbye to two of the three original families on the mission team, the Kaisers there in the middle, uh, the Reeves on the right, and then Corinne Phineas down in the bottom left. And while it has been difficult, because as a mission team, you become as close as blood relatives. It's not just co-workers, not just brothers and sisters in Christ. We become as close as family. We are each other's family 4,000 miles away from home. And while it's been difficult for the team, it's also been uh, a very difficult time for the church because these guys represent the fathers in the faith for so many of our members, the men and women that first introduced them to Christ, the men and women that walked with them through those first few crucial years in their walk with Jesus. And so while this has been a test for us, uh, it's been an even bigger one for the local congregation. But I'm very happy to be able to say that in the wake of their absence, of their departure, our congregation is stronger than it ever has been before. In their absence, in their vacancy, um, along with the, the strategy we've been putting in place for the last two years, our church members are starting to step up more than ever before into roles of leadership and responsibility, carrying out the ministries of the local church, and it has been one of the most incredible things that I've ever been able to experience, seeing what God is doing there. One of the other things I wanted to share with you in this brief uh, overview of what's going on in Cusco, I mentioned the five goals of the Cusco work, and one of those that is uh, one where I focus most is the training of local leaders. We need a church that is self-leading in the future. We need a strong eldership, strong set of deacons, strong set of men and women that are leading the church into the future. For the last six months, my wife Sarah and I have been dedicating a lot of our time and investing our time into these three couples. And I'll introduce them briefly to you. They hold such incredible promise and potential for future leadership in the church, and they are just on fire right now for working and leading this church in the future. We've been doing a weekly Bible study on biblical marriages with them. When Sarah and I return to Cusco after our furlough, we'll be each beginning, me with the three guys, Sarah with the three ladies, uh, a year of intensive one-on-one -on -one discipleship and teaching to prepare them eventually to go into that same leadership training program and hopefully begin to rise to roles of leadership within the local congregation. 
First off, we've got Santiago and his wife, Jenny, and their two daughters. This couple came out of the Pentecostal church a few years ago, and ever since they came to the church, they haven't looked back. Uh, They are one of the most passionate evangelistic couples that I've ever met, and they're bringing so many people into the church, friends and family and coworkers, and they're some of the hardest workers you'll ever meet. Um, This couple I cannot say enough good things about. Nicholas and Sachi and their little girl, Sarah, that's one of Luke's playmates there in Cusco in the children's class. I can get up here as a missionary and talk numbers all night, talk about baptisms and successes and numbers of Bible studies. But if we aren't grounding our men and women in Scripture, then all the growth in the world could be for nothing. These two, among others in the church, are passionate about the Word of God and passionate about keeping our church on the path that it needs to go and becoming deeper and deeper in love with God through His Word. This last couple is Jose and Enora uh, Garcia. Their daughter, recent college graduate Mayan, is not pictured here. Um, But I mentioned earlier that the way into an entire Latin American family is through one of the influencers in the family. And this lady's uh, extended family has become about a fifth of the congregation in Cusco. The door opened and God has continued to bring fruit from that, that effort in her family. This couple is also one of the hardest working and most evangelistic couples that I know. In our absence, they have actually grown that uh, Bible study group into a married ministry, uh, a couple's ministry there in Cusco, and we're excited to partner with them going forward, and I know they'll bring uh, years and years and years of experience and knowledge in the Word uh, to a future leadership. So please, uh, this evening, pray for the team in transition, pray for these couples and the others that God will call in the future to the work in Cusco. Uh, I did want to share one last thing with you before we dive into the Word of God for just a few minutes. If you've been keeping up with uh, global news, uh, really for the past few decades, but especially over the last couple of years, you'll know that in 2018, one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the history of South America reached a boiling point with what's going on in Venezuela. My request is that we leave politics at the door tonight. We're talking about people. What's going on in Venezuela right now, the humanitarian economic crisis that's going on there is having a ripple effect all across South America. So there are millions and millions of Venezuelans that are fleeing their homes as refugees, and they're coming into other countries in South America. Uh, One source that I researched cited that one out of every five Venezuelans that's fleeing their country as a refugee now calls Peru That's over 700,000 Venezuelans in Peru that have come in in the last two years. If you compare that to the United States population, that would be like 8.5 million coming in to the United States over the last two years. That's the magnitude and the scope of what we're dealing with there in Venezuela. These men and women are trying to come back, and so many many thousands of Venezuelans are now in in Cusco uh, trying to reestablish their lives, trying to forget past traumas of being separated from their families. We've heard stories, story after story, of people who are trying to forget the grocery stores that haven't had food on the shelves for months at a time. Men and women who have gone for weeks at a time eating nothing but fruit, and then on many occasions going for days and days with nothing to eat at all. People that have had to make that unthinkable decision of, do I answer the door and give what little I have to the person asking for it, or do I save that same food for my kids? They're trying to forget the times that they had to go to the hospital and be treated without anesthesia, with no medications, with very few physicians on staff. And so they're now in Cusco, so many of them, and they're trying to reestablish their lives. They're trying to forget what was behind. Had so many that have told stories about being allowed to leave the country 
but their two-year-old wasn't. Had to leave their children behind with family, friends, and neighbors. And as a father of a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, that hits home. We've had so many of these individuals that come into the work in Cusco, but the the incredible thing is that God always makes the most beautiful things come out of the biggest times of suffering in our lives. And that's what he's doing in the crisis in Venezuela, and that's what we're getting to see on a daily basis in Cusco. So whenever you think about the work in Cusco that you all have supported so in such a big way for five years, I don't want you to think of us as a Peruvian church with a few American missionaries thrown in there. We're a Peruvian, American, Venezuelan, Bolivian, Chilean, Brazilian, Dominican, and even German Church of Christ. On any given Sunday, we have all of those nationalities represented. And I don't know if you can identify with this, but where I'm at in Cusco, I can often get this tunnel vision and I can be so focused on what's going on in the church in Cusco that I forget just how big that is. I forget just how global the church is and how many people out there call him father. And so this is such a beautiful and vivid reminder for us every single week of just how big God is and just how much he is working in this world, even in the times of crisis. So as we close uh, the time talking about Cusco, my request of you all as the Mount Juliet congregation is that you, oh, we had several baptisms of some of those Venezuelans that have come into our church. Heaven forbid I should leave out a baptism photo out of a missions presentation. We've had so many of them come in, and they have brought such a dynamic diversity and vibrancy and energy to the local congregation, and I'm so proud of our church. When so many of the people in society around them are choosing to react to that refugee crisis and choosing to react to them in contempt and oftentimes racism, our church has shown the love of God and has opened our arms to these men and women in suffering, in trauma, and that's what church is all about. My one request for you all beyond praying for the things that you've seen here tonight in the presentation is that you please follow the work in Cusco. If you'd like to write this down, you're welcome to write this down. If you're lazy like me, you're welcome to take that phone out and snap a picture of it, or I can leave the information with one of the leaders here. But please send me an email, cuscomissions at estuschurch.org, or search for Cusco Missions on Facebook. You can talk to uh, Doug Perry, Scott Humphrey, the Haley's, the Coleman's, and others that have come down to Cusco as well if you want to hear about some of their experiences. Continue to follow Cusco, continue to support Cusco, and uh, please continue to keep Cusco in your prayers going forward. I know that was drinking out of a fire hose, and we've covered a lot of territory, but if you would get out your Bibles, uh, we're going to dive into the Word of God for just a few minutes as we close. And you're welcome to open up to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking there tonight. The longer that we live in Peru, the the more and more we're seeing just how many cultural differences there are. Uh, We try to go in and think about the commonalities between us as Americans and them as Peruvians, but we're just seeing just how deep the the differences are. And uh, one of the things that's just so incredible is that there are so many of the ancient traditions that are still kept in practice by people in Peru, people that are normal, everyday friends of ours that go to work, they're in their khakis and their, their shirt, and then they dress up like this on special occasions. And they go out to the local uh, 20,000-foot mountain, uh, the base of the 20,000-foot mountains that their ancestors used to worship, and they do what's called a payment to Mother Earth. And so they take the very best of their handcrafted goods, 
or if the, it's a business person, other things, the best of what they have to offer to Mother Earth. And I guess that this guy's best to offer was a three liter of Coca-Cola. Um, this is a real photo. It's not a, it's not a stock image. But they have this uh, desire to keep the old traditions alive. One of the other things that we notice is it seems like there's not a single Bible study that Sarah or I do that the person with whom we study hasn't had some kind of dream that they think that there's a deep meaning behind. Or they think that they maybe have had a vision, and they think that somehow we're able to interpret all that. Um, and so it's like every Bible study we start off with, it's like, I'd like to get into the Word of God. I'd like to get to know you. Well, tell me what this dream means. They're obsessed with dreams and visions. But if you look at the Bible, so is the Bible. There are some pretty insane visions throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments. We think about Daniel, and we think about the lion's den, but most of that book is about the visions that God sent his prophet Daniel. The writing on the wall, the handwriting on the wall. We think about Ezekiel and the valley of dry bones coming to life. And then you get to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation. And we see all the, all the mystic symbols and the visions and things that the Apostle John had from Jesus. And so what I want us to do tonight is I want us to focus our time in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapters 21 and 22, uh, studying what I believe is one of, if not the greatest vision in all of Scripture, which is John's vision of heaven. So if you would follow along in your Bibles, I'll also have the, the Scripture up here on the slides. First, it's always important when we're opening the Word of God to understand a scripture, we need to look at it in its historical context. So the vast majority of scholars agree that the book of Revelation was written around the year 95 AD by the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, which is off of the coast of modern-day Turkey. And this book was written at a time of extreme persecution for the first-century Christians. Not long before John wrote this book, the Roman Empire had legalized, had said, Caesar is God, and he must be worshipped. So you can imagine what that meant, the ramifications that that had for the first century Christians. They were literally fearing for their lives, and they needed hope. And so Jesus visits John in this series of visions, and at the end of the book, we come to the greatest vision of all in Revelation, which is John's vision of heaven. If you would follow along, starting in Revelation 21 and verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this vision here in Revelation 21, it begins on a note of hope. John sees this new and renewed holy city of Jerusalem, a whole new reality coming down out of heaven. And in this passage, it was so beautiful, the vision was so incredible and pure and majestic that the best way that John could describe it for us was like a bride dressed up for her husband on her wedding day. And every time I read this scripture, and I'm sure those of you that are married also have this uh, tendency, every time I read this passage, it makes me think about the day that I married Sarah. It was June 29th, 2013, almost six years ago, and I'm never going to forget that day. I'm never going to forget what it was like finally getting to that day after the months and months of anticipation and planning and money and spending money and spending money and spending money. And after all of that, finally getting to that day, there in the church building, I was there with my grandfather. I'll, I'll say this. He preached at Mount Juliet back in the 50s. And so I've been part of the extended uh, Mount Juliet family since before I was born. But my father, grandfather led the first part of the, the ceremony. My father came up afterwards, led the rest of it. 
My brother, Jonathan, who's a member at Creve Hall down the road, who's standing there about to bust out in tears behind me. And I can remember that moment when finally the music started, the, the crowd stood up, and everybody turned around, and there at the end of the aisle, the doors opened, and there stood Sarah. And I'm never going to forget that moment when she came into the auditorium. Her father began walking her down the aisle, and I'll never forget how beautiful she was. And I'll never forget how difficult it was for me to hold back the tears, and I did a way better job than my little brother. And I'm never going to forget how her father walked her to the end of the aisle, and they stopped at the end of the aisle. He embraced her, gave her a huge hug, and then he gave her hand to me, and we made our vows to each other, and we began a new era of our lives together. It's a moment you don't forget. It's a moment that marks an entirely new direction in your future. It changes everything about your reality, and that's what John is trying to describe for us here. That is the best human description John could have possibly chosen to describe for, for us humans what it's going to be like when we finally are in the arms of our Father in heaven. Because from what John says, it's going to be beyond anything we could ever imagine when we are finally in the arms of our Father one day in eternity. Moving on to verse 3. <clears throat> he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One says that for Christians in eternity, finally meeting their God, it's going to be beyond anything we can ever, ever imagine. Because when we are finally joined together with God in heaven, that means that every temptation, every suffering, any cause for pain or mourning or tears was just going to simply disappear as we are running into the arms of our Father. But then down in verse 8, John turns our focus to the other side of the coin. He spends all of this time painting this beautiful metaphor for what it's going to be like for us in heaven as Christians, but then he turns it to the other side of the coin, and he says in verse 8, but for the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake which burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so John spends all of these verses, 1 through 7, painting the picture of what it's going to be like for us in heaven as Christians, and then he contrasts that starkly with the alternative, which is an eternity in hell. In verse 8, Jesus names every class of sinner imaginable, and then he tells us in no uncertain terms that those who reject him, those who don't accept Jesus Christ, they also have an eternal destination, and he calls that eternal destination a place that burns with fire and sulfur. He calls it a second death. And so what we see on the one side of the coin is we've got the most beautiful wedding scene imaginable, and then you flip that over, and on the other side is the most horrible manifestation of pain and suffering and death we could ever imagine. And throughout the New Testament, time and time and time again, we see that hell is very real, and that number two, we cannot even begin to describe in human terms what it's going to be like. The words of Jesus in Matthew 25, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels, and those will go away into eternal punishment. Matthew 13, So it will be at the end of the age. 
the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and they'll throw them into the fiery furnace and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It'd be better for you to go through life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And then the one that absolutely shakes me every time I read it, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I want you to listen to this because it's huge. The reason that God so desperately wants us to know how horrible hell will be is because he so desperately wants to save us from it. He wants to embrace us and welcome us in as a, as a husband embraces and welcomes in his bride on their wedding day. He wants to protect us. He wants to provide for us and he wants to hold on to us and be with us forever in eternity where he's made everything new and wonderful and perfect forever. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, the Lord's not slack, he's not slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He's long-suffering, he's patient toward us because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then later on in John's vision in Revelation, as if we needed any more motivation, Jesus continues to paint the portrait of heaven in terms that we can understand. And what I want to do right now is I want to just read this next passage to you. I want us to take that deep breath, put all the distractions out from our minds. You're welcome to close your eyes when I begin reading, if that would help you. Forget all the symbolism, forget all the codes and all the mysterious language, and just focus in on the image that comes to your mind when you hear the description that John gives of heaven. Starting in chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the 12 gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Down in verse 18, the wall of the city was built of jasper, while the city itself was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the city street was pure gold, like transparent glass. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is God, and the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Can you see it? Can you even start to imagine even if just a little bit what it might be like for us as Christians when we finally are there in heaven and this description that John gives, the incredible thing is that it doesn't even come close to describing what it's really gonna be like because this description of John is still in human terms. It's still in terms that we can understand. It's still in human terms. And so not even this image in all of its beauty and glory and majesty can come close to comparing to what it's going to be like for us in heaven. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. With all of my heart, that's where I want to be. And I want to be there with him forever 
And I pray to God that each one of you I'm seeing out tonight is there too. And so that's John's vision of heaven. But one thing that we can say for sure in Scripture is that throughout Scripture, every one of the visions or prophecies that God ever sent to one of his prophets, it had an intention and a purpose behind it. So we have to ask ourselves, what's this vision mean for me? So tonight I want to draw three simple conclusions as we close from John's vision of heaven, and then we're going to take a couple of applications from that. The first of those conclusions is this. Too few of us truly live like hell is real. So what do I mean by that? A minute ago, we read that series of scriptures describing hell, and if we believe that the the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, then unfortunately, those passages left us without a doubt that hell exists, but how many of us truly live our lives day to day in light of that reality? How many of us truly live our lives believing that a place of eternal punishment exists, and that as difficult as it may be to accept, there are some people in this world that are going to be spending their eternities there? And what I've seen throughout the years is that the vast majority of people, including Christians, are living their lives too casually. What do I mean by that? I mean that even though we may accept the concept of hell on an intellectual level, when it comes to how we live our lives every day, it's obvious that we don't take hell seriously. We just don't. And it's obvious that we don't because there are so many people in this world that are making huge life-changing decisions based only on what's happening in their earthly lives. They're making decisions thinking only about today or tomorrow or maybe even next week or month or year. And that's absolutely insane to me. People that are making eternal decisions based only on the temporal, based only on what's going on in their lives here on earth. You think about those people that you see and interact with on a daily basis. We are literally surrounded by people that are living their lives too casually. Think about it in this way. Imagine you're out on a hike. This is, we live in the hiking capital of the world. This is a very real illustration for me. Imagine you're out there, it's just you and a buddy, you're walking in front and your buddy's behind you and you go through a place where the the trail narrows a little bit and all of a sudden you hear the rustling of gravel behind you. You turn around just in time to see that your buddy is slipping off of the ledge and he's grabbing on and holding onto the ledge for dear life. And in that moment, you've got a choice. You can either help your friend up or you can casually turn around and walk away like it never happened. And never in a million years would you do that. And yet that is exactly what we do every single day when we see the same people that we care about, that we work with, and we choose not, we choose to go another day without sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Or if you're like me at so many times in my life, we compartmentalize our lives so much. This is my church life. This is my social life. This is my work life that I don't even think sometimes of the people that I'm around every day in terms of their eternal destinations. Or maybe you're like me and you get so caught up in the next deadline at work, the insanely overbooked schedule that you're trying to juggle that we've become numb to the fact that the people that we see every day have souls and that they will spend eternity somewhere. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, He says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and that has to be either true or false. Now, there are good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Now, we keep filling up our lives more and more and more with so many empty things that only have an impact on the 70, 80, 90 years that we're on this earth 
And we're stuck in this cycle of insanity that's so focused on getting ahead in this life, on having enough in this life, on having the best of what we can get in this life that we don't even think about the eternal consequences of that next life for ourselves or for the people that are around us. When it comes down to it, too few of us truly live like hell is real. But far more than that, the main message of John's vision from Jesus is that too few of us truly live like heaven is real. Because far more than my desire to avoid an eternity in hell, I should be uncontrollably excited about spending my eternity in the presence of my Lord. But the reality is that too few of us live, or too many of us live our lives with absolutely no joy, with no outward fervor and happiness. Nobody can tell that we're even Christians with a hope of heaven by looking at us from the outside. And I think the root cause of that is that we spend far too little time meditating on heaven. We don't think about it. We don't spend time considering it and meditating on it. And so we don't truly have that deep, inward, heartfelt longing to be there in heaven. And I think that's because we have not even begun to come close to imagining what God has in store for us. I want you to listen once more very closely to a few excerpts from Revelation 21. He will dwell with them. This is what it's going to be like. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. He's making all things new. He's, heaven has the glory of God. It's radiance like a, a rare jewel, the city streets of pure gold. No need of a temple in the city because the temple is God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God is going to give it light. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so beyond all of that beauty and majesty and glory that we read about in John's description, when you get down to it, heaven is really all about being with our God for eternity. And I can't wait to be there with him. And I hope you feel the same way. So please live your life like hell is real. But even more than that, please live your life every single moment of every single day knowing that heaven is real and that it's waiting there for you. To draw a third conclusion and final one from John's vision, we're going to switch over to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and starting there in verse 12. And John says this, or Jesus says this to John, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The third conclusion from John's vision is that too few of us truly live like Jesus is coming back. 
But the reality that we have to come to terms with is that Jesus is coming back. If you're a Christian, that is the best news you could ever, ever, ever hear. We've all heard about that day, the day that the Bible calls the day of judgment. When you first hear it, it sounds absolutely terrifying. But for Christians, oh my, (laughs) I cannot wait for that day to come. I cannot wait for that day to come. It's the best news I could ever, ever hear. We should be longing for that day as Christians. We should be excited about the day, and we should be living every single day of our lives here on this earth, anticipating and waiting for that day and longing for that day, and knowing that anything that we have to suffer in this life is going to be worth the glory that we're going to get to share with our Lord in heaven for eternity. So praise God that that day is coming. But for those who don't know Jesus, for those who reject Jesus, that day's also coming. For all of those who live their lives too casually, that day is coming. And it's a reality that we can't escape. And if you're a Christian, it's a reality that should make you stop dead in your tracks and think about things a little bit more closely. But praise God, because there's still hope. Jesus sent these visions to John, number one, to give hope to a people in despair 2,000 years ago in persecution. Number two, he gave him this vision to warn all of those that are living their lives too casually. But most of all, he gave this vision to us to motivate us to change our lives and to embrace him and him alone. So tonight, are you living your life in light of the reality of heaven and hell? If you're a Christian, are you longing for heaven? Are you really longing for heaven? Are you really taking the time to imagine what God has in store for you? And if you're not a Christian, are you scared enough about the prospect of spending an eternity separated from your God? If you can answer no to any of those questions, then tonight is that night. Tonight is the moment that you have an opportunity to make things right. And all you have to do is accept the fact that you need a Savior. Accept the fact that you can't save yourself, that you need a Savior, and then follow what he says in the Bible to accept him as that Savior, to repent of the sins in your life, to to confess him as Lord, and then to put him on in baptism, and then live a life dedicated, sold out for him. If there's absolutely anything that you need, tonight is the night to make that change. You're welcome to come forward during the invitation song here in a moment and speak with one of the ministers or elders here in the congregation. If you'd like to speak to someone in private, find me or find someone else afterwards. But just know that you're in family here. There's not a bit of judgment if anybody needs to respond because everybody knows we're all in the same boat. This family here at Mount Juliet will welcome you with open arms and do everything they can to help you. If there's anything we can do for you tonight,